can have a seat. Jesus paid it all is not just a Lenten message. It's not just an Easter message. It's an all-year-round message. It's the theme, really, of our lives. He paid for our sins so that we can have eternal life, a fresh start, a new beginning. We're going to continue today in um, our Lenten journey, and as we do, we come to a day that we're going to talk about confession. Uh, there's a beautiful chapter in the Bible that really is uh, it's just an, a very important passage in the life of our church and really in the life of every believer. It's found in Luke chapter 15. It talks about three things that are lost, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and finally a lost son. And I want you, as you, we listen to this passage this morning, as you read it, just go ahead and allow yourself to imagine yourself in this story, whether you imagine yourself as the father standing at the end of the road waiting for his child to return, or the child looking hesitantly up the road wondering what the father is going to do. Uh, allow yourself to really be enveloped by this story today. Bible says there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got, got together all he had and set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is now found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile... The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked about what was going on. Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, really angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out to him, and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even the youngest goat so I could have fun with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you celebrate? You kill a fatted calf for him? My son... 
you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Confession is good for the soul and, every, and everyone around us. Like the prodigal son who finally came to his senses and confessed to his father, I have sinned and discovered that his father was waiting for him with love in his heart and forgiveness on his lips. Lent is a season when we, too, have the opportunity to confess our sin and experience God's steadfast love and forgiveness. But while he was far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Confession is the outward discipline associated with the inner act of repentance. It gives us something concrete to do with the sins and negative patterns we are naming in God's presence. The trouble is, we live in a culture that promotes a profound sense of denial about the presence of sin in our lives. Even when something is our fault, we're encouraged not to admit it unless we can derive some benefit from it, like a reduced penalty or repairing our public image. We are encouraged to hide the truth until we can no longer get away with it. And even then, we may still try to twist facts or misuse language to keep from having to acknowledge personal responsibility of our actions. We use all sorts of means, ranging from flat-out denial to subtle misuse of language to avoid having to admit that we've done wrong. True confession requires us to name our sin out loud to ourselves, to God, and to the people we have injured or offended, taking steps to renounce it for Christ's sake. True confession will involve the willingness to make restitution if that's needed. Wouldn't it be something if during this Lenten season we ask God to help us make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves? What if we actually confessed as sin our bad behaviors towards others, both in current situations and also in the history of our past relationships? What if during this season we wrote notes, made phone calls, and had face-to-face meetings in which we confessed our sins to one another and asked forgiveness for sins past and present? I cannot imagine a more powerful force for good in this world than for us as Christians to confess our sins to God and to one another so that grace can flow more freely among us. I cannot imagine the homecomings there might be in our relationships with God and with each other as we acknowledge the ways we have wounded our own life, the lives of others, and the life of the world. Let us not miss the opportunity to confess our sins to God and to one another so that we can be healed. So this morning, we're going to pause for a couple moments silently in the presence of God. And as we do, we have some questions for you that you'll see on the screen, questions that you can work through during the silence. You might ask, how do I currently practice confession in my life? Ask God to reveal any current or past situation in which you carry unacknowledged sin. As he reveals areas that need attention, make confession to God first. Then ask for wisdom and direction about confessing that sin to others. And don't forget to ask, what do I need to do to make this right? So, we'll spend that time in silence, and then as we come out of that, our servers will come and, and begin to
distribute communion to us. And rather than listening to music or watching a video or something else, we're going to engage in, in a really beautiful prayer that the church has prayed for many, many years, a prayer that involves really deep confession. And I'll read, I'll read the first part, pray the first part to God, and then you'll notice at the end of each slide, minus the first one, there will be a bold phrase, uh, a phrase in bold that we will, that we will pray together aloud. So um, for now, just take that two minutes with these questions silent in the presence of God. So our servers are coming now and, and communion will be distributed to you. And as you do, uh, Brian and I are going to turn toward the screen as well because this is all of us <clears throat> confessing to God. It's not us leading you in confession. It's literally all of us confessing uh, the sin that we have committed. So bring the first slide. <clears throat> And again, I'll read the main part, and then you'll read the bold part, but we won't read pause in silent preparation, all right? <laughs> you got that? Good. Most holy and merciful God, I confess that I have sinned by my own fault in thought, word, and deed. By what I have done and by what I have left undone, with the help of your help, Holy Spirit, help me to find my true confession. Move to the next. I have not loved you with my whole heart and mind and strength. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I have not forgiven others as I have been forgiven. Have mercy on me, Lord. I have been deaf to your call to serve, especially in moments when it has been hard or inconvenient, even though Christ has served me and given his life for me. In such moments, I have not been true to the mind of Christ. I have grieved the Holy Spirit. Have mercy on me, Lord. I confess to you my past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, the impatience of my life, while all the while pretending to be humble and honest and patient. I confess to you, Lord. I confess my self-indulgent appetites and ways and my exploitation of other people for my own ego-driven plans. I confess to you, Lord. I confess my anger and frustration at the limits of my own situation and my envy of those who seem to be more fortunate, more gifted, more resourced than I. I confess to you, Lord. I confess my attachment to worldly goods and my own personal comfort and my subtle dishonesty in daily life and work. I confess to you, Lord. I confess my negligence in my own personal prayer and worship 
and my failure to live out the faith that is in me. I confess to you, Lord. Accept my repentance, Lord, for the wrongs I have done, for my blindness to human need and suffering, my indifference to injustice and cruelty, and my cowardice in refusing to use my voice on behalf of others. Accept my repentance, Lord. Forgive me for my false judgments, uncharitable thoughts toward those among whom I work and live, and for my prejudice and contempt toward those who differ from me. Accept my repentance, Lord. Restore me, good Lord. And let your anger depart from me. Favorably hear me, for your mercy is great. Restore me, good Lord. Accomplish in me the work of your salvation, that I may show forth your glory in the world by the cross and passion of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Favorably hear me, for your mercy is great, and bring me with all your saints to the joy of his resurrection. Amen. Amen. Our servers are going to come forward now and uh, receive the offering. And as they do, uh, we've got a couple announcements for you. The first of which, if you have been missing something, if you have lost a coat or maybe a kid has lost a pair of whatever you've got, uh, next week we're going to have a table out front uh, to where you can come and collect those things. We've got quite the stockpile after winter, uh, so be ready next week uh, to have your eyes on that table. It's not a yard sale, uh, but we will be uh, handing out out the lost belongings uh, again next week. Uh, March and April are going to bring about a couple of really cool opportunities for us to get our hands dirty. One, we have Easter coming up, and we'd like this place to look uh, really nice for the Easter service. So we're going to have some opportunities to do some uh, cleanup around the flower beds and some other clearing and stuff. So again, um, we're going to be announcing that along with the INM path cleanup and the uh, section of Route 6 that we have adopted. Uh, We're going to be able to uh, spend March and April doing some cleanup opportunities there, so keep your ears uh, open for that if that's something you'd be interested in getting involved in. Uh, Easter is coming very soon, as I said. It's the last Sunday of this month, so go ahead and get those invites out. Uh, now is the time to start working on people so that you know, they are softened and ready uh, to, to come hear uh, the, the Easter message. Because again, it, whether it's someone who's not involved in a church at all, or it's someone who just doesn't have a, ho- a ho- church home right now, um, again, this can be a really, uh, really powerful thing because people are very willing to come on Easter and Christmas. Uh, so make sure, to get, uh, make sure to get those invites out now rather than waiting until the last minute as I tend to do with most things. Uh, next Sunday also is going to be one of the tougher Sundays of the year, especially if you're someone who likes sleep. Uh, we lose an hour next week. So go to bed an hour early or um, you're going to be hurting next week. So again, uh, <laughs> next week we spring forward. And finally, uh, the last thing is we have two spots left for our trip next week, our revived trip to escape. So again, we will not be meeting here uh, next Sunday night. Instead, we'll be going to Bloomington. So two spots left, 35 bucks. get it to me. We want you to come. Very good. 
So your opening question this morning, you're going to take a little different slant on it, okay? I want everyone to take a moment, just a moment, to express authentic gratitude for something, anything, okay? It could be how your day is going, it could be about your body, your health, your spouse, Jesus, I mean anything. As long as it's authentic, turn into somebody right now and express authentic gratitude. Go ahead, do it. All right, you're doing well. Now, now, now the flip. Take a moment to complain about something. It could be how your day is going, your body, your spouse, your health. Probably not Jesus, okay? But whatever you can, authentically complain about something. Go ahead. All right, three, two, one. You know what was kind of incredible about that? The difference in energy between the two. I mean, be thankful. Oh, mutter, 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 complain. Wah, let's go for it. I didn't get a chance to gripe, so my gratitude is that you're here today. My gripe is that the time changes next week. I think it should always fall backward. I don't care. In fact, it should fall backward every weekend, all right? So what if it's noon and it's dark? I don't care. I love the extra hour. Well, I'm not going to ask you uh, which one of those felt better, okay? But I suspect uh, we're pretty good at doing at least one of those actions. You are either just a kind of a naturally grateful person. You've mastered the fine art of gratitude. You're great. You're blessed and you know it. And for others of us, we've got a pretty good handle on complaining. I mean, we can, we can whip up a gripe in no time flat. It's kind of an art form. Again, we've mastered it. It's like that little pressure release valve. And, and we feel better after a good gripe session. Have you ever met someone who said, here's my goal in life. I want to complain more. I just, I just want to gripe a little bit more. Sadly, we live in what one author has labeled a culture of complaint. People are great at griping to get their way. We're in a series called I Quit, and we're looking at some of the things we need to eliminate from our lives to make space for God and to experience his presence more fully. So far, we've talked about quitting hiding and quitting hating, and today we're going to talk about quitting complaining. So if you want, I'll shut my eyes and you can leave the room. All right, y'all stay. Good. Here we go. Now, there are basically two ways we can quit complaining. One of them is to change your external world so that there are no circumstances to complain about. Just change everything. Don't like your house? Move. Don't like your job? Change it. I mean, you know, I could go on with this list forever and ever and ever, all right? You, got, you just always have to make sure that if you're single, your dates are cute. If you're a student, your grades are A's, and make sure that your relatives live far away. And if, if all that's going on, you won't have a lot of complaining going on. You can change your external world. The other way, though, is to change our internal world. We pray, God, would you give me the kind of inner attitude so, so I could receive every day as a gift of manna from you? Would you show me what the Apostle Paul talked about, learning to be the secret of being content in every situation? Clearly, we cannot change every aspect of our outer world, but we do have some say on what's going on on the inside. We still live in this world. I mean, we're, we're stuck here, where there's pain and difficult circumstances all the time. 
There are some bad things to complain about. You can, oh, even your chair. I mean, there's something to complain about. Even sitting in church. What are we to do? I mean, are we supposed to just fake it, be inauthentic, act like when bad things are happening, we really think it's okay? What are we supposed to do? God is good. He doesn't want us to be fake. He wants us to be able to be joyful and be our truest selves at our point of deepest pain as well. There's actually a distinction between the two words used in the Bible that we would typically label complaint. One of them is the word groan. Grown. This goes way back in the history of the people of Israel. Exodus 2 says, years passed and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out to God for help and the cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. God actually responded positively to their groaning. He heard their groaning, and he responded compassionately. This practice of groaning is actually biblical and acceptable. In in God's inspired word in the Psalms, we read this in Psalm 6. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? You will see that phrase repeated again and again in the Psalms. How long is this going to go on? How long before this ends? He says, I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. The psalmist is actually experiencing groaning fatigue. He is tired, tired of groaning. There's this book in the Bible called Lamentations. Uh, Personally, not a book I'd recommend uh, during the gloomier parts of winter. January, February, you know, just got, but it's March. You know, spring is here. I mean, come on. It's, it's, things are going to start to bloom really soon. So here's what the writer of, of Lamentations says in Lamentations 2. Arise, cry out. That's the word groan. Groan in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. That's groaning. People do it in the Bible and they do it in real life. It's actually commanded in Scripture. Go ahead and groan. Now there's another word that starts with G in the Bible that we often use for the word complaint, and that's grumbling. Grumbling. Some people grumble. We see this again all the way back in the history of Israel. Exodus 15 says, So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Moses reminds them about this part of their history in Deuteronomy chapter 1. He says, you grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites and to destroy us. This word also makes it into the Psalms. Psalm 106 says, they grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. They grumbled in their tents. Notice what it's paired with and did not obey the Lord. Now this, this word grumbling This is actually forbidden in the Bible. We're not supposed to do this. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Philippi, and he says these simple words, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Does anybody ever grumble? Uh, You know, we do sometimes, right? You might think of grumbling as actually one of the more trivial sins in the Bible. They're they're the biggie. I'm not going to murder somebody. That would be bad. But grumbling, not such a big deal. You know, it's actually a very, very serious sin. If you think it's, there's nothing to it, you'd actually be wrong. 
Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says we ought to avoid the sins Israel committed while wandering in the wilderness. He says we shouldn't commit idolatry or sexual immorality or defy God. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, and do not grumble as some did and were killed by the destroying angel. Sounds serious. It's deadly serious. Grumbling is deadly serious. You have these two words, groaning and grumbling. Groaning is actually encouraged in the Bible, and grumbling is forbidden. Now, what's the difference between the two of them? I want you to just look at these comparisons side by side. Groaning is something I do to God. Grumbling is something I say about God. I kind of, I get ticked off with, I, I just, I grumble about him. Groaning, I do to God's face. Grumbling, I do behind his back. The place where Israel would groan was on their knees in prayer to God. The place where they would grumble, in their tents. In isolation, where they were free to exaggerate or make up whatever they wanted to imagine. So let's work through kind of anatomy of grumbling today. What's it all about? And I want to walk us through some of the times in the history of Israel when they had the biggest problems with grumbling. We're going to see why grumbling is so destructive. And we'll do a little self-assessment and try to see ways that we can be liberated from complaining. We want to be a church that is known for gratitude, a place that is not marked by grumbling, a place that is not fertile ground for griping. Way back in Israel's history, God delivers them from slavery. He literally parts the Red Sea Then he sends 10 plagues. He destroys Pharaoh's army. They're on their way to the promised land. You would think they would be grateful as long as they live. I mean, how can they not be grateful? Well, not so much. Not so much. A couple days into the wilderness, they can't find water. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? God miraculously supplies refreshing water for them. So now they have freedom and they have water. And you think, my goodness, they are going to be grateful forever. Not so much. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat at pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They're sitting there like, you know, do you remember lamb stew? Oh, I love lamb stew. Lamb stew is the best. And here we are out here. And this guy, he's just going to kill us out here. I miss lamb stew. I want lamb stew. God hears their grumbling again. God is gracious. And God miraculously provides them bread from heaven. You know about this. The Israelites call it manna. The word manna literally means, what is it? What, is it? What, what am I holding here in my hand? It, it's a cracker. It tastes like honey. So it's pretty good stuff. Now they'll be grateful forever. Now everything's good. I mean, they have freedom. They have water. They have bread. Not so much. The people fell to grumbling over their hard life. They got tired of manna. They got sick of it. God heard. When he heard, his anger flared. The riffraff among the people had a craving and soon had the people of Israel whining. Why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt and we got it for free. Remember that phrase, got it free, okay? We'll come back to that in a moment. We ate fish in Egypt and we got it for free to say nothing of the cucumbers and melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. 
Nothing tastes good out here. It's just manna, manna, manna. All we ever get is manna. Okay, now we start to see part of why grumbling is so destructive and why God takes it so seriously. It it literally destroys your soul and it takes the joy out of life. For one thing, grumbling is incredibly contagious. It started with just a few. There were just a couple people whining and pretty soon it spread. Grumbling is that way. Emotions are unbelievably contagious. Have you ever noticed that your mood can be turned by other people in the room? You can actually be having a pretty good day. And you walk in, a bunch of people are kind of in grumble mode. And before you know it, you're matching them. We have a choice. We can be an emotional thermometer or a thermostat. Thermometers reflect the temperature of the room. Whatever is going on in the room, they just go ahead and mesh with it. Thermostats control the climate. Most of us reflexively default to thermometer mode. We just fall in with whatever's going on. It takes effort. It takes real effort to stop and say, I'm not reflecting the mood. I'm setting the temperature. I'm going to make sure that this place is actually a place that is full of gratitude. Just sitting next to a negative person can make you more negative. Don't believe me? Head over to the DMV in Morris. Okay, just go ahead and have a seat. You don't even have to go there to do anything. Just have a seat. Negativity is just an incredibly contagious thing. Pretty soon, everybody is whining. See, the thing is, when I'm grumbling about something else, I don't have to look at myself. I don't have to look at my issues. I don't have to look at my contribution to my mood because I'm the one controlling my mood. Grumbling is contagious. It's also incredibly toxic. It can destroy a family. It can destroy an office. It can decimate a church. I've been here a long time, over 20 years. We've had seasons, honestly, that we did a pretty good imitation of the Israelites, especially early on. This is not one of those seasons, by the way. We've been riving an amazing wave of gratitude. It has been a fun season. But I want to just give you a friendly warning, okay? You want to wake up my inner spiritual mama bear? Try taking us back to the grumble years. Just try it. This shepherd has seen sheep ravaged and devoured by toxic grumbling. I will be on you like spiritual white on rice if you try to go there, if you try to take us there. Grumbling kills churches, kills families. It's just toxic. It's contagious. It's toxic. It's also destructive because it distorts our perspective. That's another thing about grumbling. I mean, time and time again, you see these miracles and you think, that's it. They will never be ungrateful again. And yet their perspective gets distorted. They say, remember in Egypt when we had fish for free? Folks, what were they in Egypt? Slaves. What do you get for free when you're a slave? You get nothing for free when you're... Can you imagine? It's not even months and they're like, oh, the good old days when we used to get whipped. Oh, I miss that so much. Fish for... Hey, grumbling really distorts reality. Before you know it, you're not looking at what really is. When I'm grumbling, it causes me to blow past, ignore and dismiss all the good, thing God, good things God does for me and exaggerate whatever is difficult in my life. The bad seems badder when we grumble. There's a phrase, uh, Lorraine, my friend Lorraine likes to use it. She sits over here during the second service, okay? And she didn't, it didn't originate with her, but she uses it pretty often. 
When someone's in wine mode, and I mean, you know, wine, W-H-I-N-E, not wine. When they're in wine mode, she throws out a little line. First world problems. First world problems. I want, to watch, want you, I want you to watch this little video and see if you can relate to some of this uh, first world griping. So I pay $5 for a two-hour movie and then realize that my flight is only 90 minutes long. I mean, come on! Tired. I think I slept too much. Honey, the fridge is full. Babe, my coffee mug is too tall for the Keurig. What am I supposed to do with my leftover chicken fajitas? I'm hungry, but I'm not like hungry, hungry. I'm not hungry, hungry. I'm not hungry, hungry. I'm not hungry, hungry. I don't even know if I'm hungry. It's 11 o'clock, and I don't know whether to eat breakfast or lunch. I think I'm hungry. I hate watching Blu-rays on this TV. It looks too real. I'm not even hungry. My phone is 4G, but we don't have 4G coverage where we live, so it's the worst. This is the worst. No! Oh! Oh! I clicked restart instead of shut down. I have to wait for it to start back up again so I can shut it down. I hate it. I'm, like, too healthy. I never get to use any of my sick days. Closet full of clothes, nothing to wear. My white noise machine broke last night, and I didn't get any sleep. There's nothing to watch. There is nothing to watch. The bottom of my foot has been itching all day, but it tickles when I scratch it. I didn't finish brushing my teeth this morning. My battery died halfway through. I hate that. My hair smells like Starbucks. My hand smells like Starbucks. My iPad smells like Starbucks. That's the worst. Just shoot me. Oh, just shoot me. Put me out of my misery. Kill me now. Just shoot me in the face. Wasn't I just chewing gum? I don't remember spitting it out. This blanket doesn't have any sleeves. <laughs> Yeah, based on the laughs, I suspect a few of us have been there, right? Kim likes to play this little game. Every once in a while, you know, she'll be blown away by some technology experience, and she'll say something like this. Can you imagine how George Washington or Ben Franklin would react if they could see this? I mean, imagine our little kite flyer, George Wash or Ben Franklin, standing on the bluffs of the Illinois River, looking out over Dresden as a nuclear engineer explains to him the wonders of the power being generated, running through those wires to light the lights in the neighborhood behind him. Or imagine uh, handing George Washington a chainsaw and says, see what this does to that little cherry tree over there. Go ahead and try it out. Or handing him your iPhone and saying, it's Paul Revere. He's got a message about the arrival of the British. You know, <laughs> go ahead and do that. I mean, we could go on and on, right? Think about the things we think about the things we get to enjoy so much that that so few people in human history have ever experienced. We are incredibly blessed. I was literally not related to the sermon. I'm standing the other day. I turn on the shower and I thought it's been less than a century that people could turn on a faucet and enjoy immediate hot water out of a tap. Hundreds and hundreds of generations of people. And we get to be right here, right now. And what do we do? First world gripe. First world gripe all the time. I mean, you got a cell phone? 
got a cell phone. I'm serious. Pull it out. Take a picture right now in church. Go ahead and do it. Just take it. I'm serious. I know y'all got one. You let it ring all the time while I'm talking. <laughs> take it out. Pull it out. Take a picture. You can take a picture of me. I, I, I wore this just for this moment. You can take a picture of the screen. Take a picture of the person next to you. I don't care. Just go ahead and take a picture. Post it to Facebook. Tweet it. Instagram it. I, I, I won't even say anything really important for the next couple moments. So you can go ahead and get that done. Why don't you hashtag it? Southfield is Greatfield. Southfield, Southfield is grateful, not Greatfield. Southfield is grateful. You know, I want you to think about this for a moment. We couldn't do this 10 years ago. I mean, reality is most of us couldn't do it five years ago. Some of us can't do it right now. But anyway, that's a whole different story. When we grumble, it causes us to blow past, dismiss, ignore all the good things God does for us and to exaggerate whatever is difficult in our lives. There is no place for grumbling. But you know what? There is a very biblical place for groaning. When I groan, I do it in the presence of God. Groaning in the Bible is God-centered. It comes on people who are in deep pain or deep sorrow, but they're very aware of the broader context. When people groan, they tend to be very aware of their own sin. There are psalms in the Bible known as psalms of lament. It's the most common kind of psalm. They're groaning psalms. Psalms where the psalmist is just groaning to God and groaning in front of other people. They often include confession of sin because awareness of and confession of my sin is very much part of the groaning process. Groaning is God-centered. Grumbling is self-centered. That's why God doesn't want us grumbling. It's just all about me, what I want. How how come I'm not having the fish I want, or the meat I want, or the pleasure I want, or the success I want? It's it's all kind of, you know, self-junked up in there. And it's always destructive to the soul. But I'll tell you what, it is contagious. Don't forget that. Look at what happens. You know, the Bible says it started with the riffraff. Then it goes to the whole people. And then ultimately it impacts the leader. Numbers 11. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance of their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you? And what that you put me, that you put the burden of these people on me. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give birth to, the, birth to them? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on an oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for these people? They keep wailing, give me meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please just go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let my face, and do not let me face my own ruin. Now that's not the most spiritual sounding passage in the Bible, is it? I mean, it doesn't sound great. But but here's the thing, you know, Moses is doing some serious groaning. But how is he doing it? He's doing it to God. He's owning what's going on inside of him to God. He gets that part right. He complains to God and not about God. He goes to God's face, not behind God's back. We actually need to do more of this kind of groaning to God, where we just take our hurt, take the thing that we have, and bring it to the presence of God. His honesty with God, the edginess of his language. There's nothing polite. Think about it. Moses must have had such a deep, authentic, alive, real, honest relationship with God to be able to talk that way. 
If you ever find your prayers becoming kind of boring or dull or there's no life in them, maybe it's because there's not enough reality going on in them. Maybe you're not just saying, God, this is what's really going on in me. See, God can work with groaning. God wants us to go through life without grumbling, but he's good with groaning. So here's the thing. We don't quit complaining by putting on a fake smile while we're filled with with negativity and sourness and pessimism and ingratitude. We we don't just cover it up. We're, We're not just groaning on the inside, griping on the inside, and grinning on the surface with a happy face. We don't suppress our pain and fake our happy. That's not what God wants for us. God wants us to feel gratitude deeply. Now that's going to take some transformation for us. Some transformation where we can really own our gratitude. I mean, I want you to think about it. We are a, we're a blessed church. We really are. Wouldn't it be wonderful, a wonderful thing if the level of our gratitude achieved the level of our blessing? If the two actually went hand in hand, wouldn't that be a cool thing? There are practices we can put into place throughout the week that God can begin to use to transform us to be genuinely grateful. We all want this. We all want to be this kind of person. We really do. One of them is that we actually presence, that we actually, in the presence of God, express gratitude. Whether or not we feel the emotion, it's not about feeling. It's simply expressing the gratitude. It's a powerful thing. The opening line of Psalm 100 in the King James Version of the Bible encourages us to make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's an interesting phrase, make a joyful noise. Anybody can do that. Anybody can. A joyful noise. It's not very specific. Part of what's interesting, he doesn't say, have a joyful feeling. He just says, make a joyful noise. Why? Well, Sometimes we're not feeling joyful, but we can still let God know that we are grateful. I love how Eugene Peterson translates Psalm 100 in his translation of the Bible, The Message. Here's how he translates it. He begins by saying, on your feet now, applaud God. That's the joyful noise. He goes on to say, bring a gift of laughter. When you come to church, when you gather with your friends, bring a gift of laughter. Further down, he says, sing yourself into the presence of God. That's why we singing is such a good thing. It's an expression of our heart. It's an expression of gratitude. Go down to verse 4. I love this part. He says, enter the presence of God. Enter with the password, thank you. I love that password. Are, Are you kind of frustrated with passwords these days? Oh my word, we have too many. I'm, I'm not kidding. I was literally making up the slides for this sermon and kind of multitasking. I was trying to remember the password of a site and it was making me insane and it never fails. I'll go ahead and change it. And then after the change, I remember the password and go, oh, I really like that password. And now I can't use it for like a year or whatever. It just, okay, my gripe is done. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not just groaning. I promise on that one. Um, the password into the presence of God is thank you, thank you. I was thinking about that opening line. It's a cool opening line. On your feet now, applaud God. On your feet, applaud God. You know, we take a contemporary approach to worship around here. And some people tend to think of contemporary as just, it's, you know, 
modern music as opposed to hymns. That's not it. Contemporary is really much, much more than song selection. Mostly it means we aim at being relevant. We try to communicate in a language that speaks plainly to our generation and to the next generation. Now, in my church growing up, when someone wanted to express agreement with what the pastor was saying or the message of a song, they would say, amen. Some would even shout, amen. You know, they'd hear from the back and everybody turn. Amen is a simple word. It's a religious word. It's a biblical word. And because of the way we use it at the end of the prayer, some might actually think it means I'm done now, over and out. But no, there's more going on there. Amen means surely, indeed, truly, so be it. Or, or in other words, it means I agree. Amen. And even more modern, and even in our modern times, it may sound even more something like this. Yes. Yes. That, that's modern amen. Yes. Now, we don't amen much around here. Every once in a while, somebody will do it. Now, I'm not suggesting we start because, because we actually have a contemporary way of saying amen. And you may never have thought of it this way. Sometimes at the end of a song, we clap. Clapping, I understand, could be easily misread, especially if you came from an amening church. When we clap, we're not saying, wow, Dana sounded great today. Woo, that was great. Or Shelly really rocked it out. Or John, that was some pounding bass. Or, or Jason, man, you drum like a rock star. We're not praising Stephanie or Tyler or Pete or Rachel or Jackson or Jeff or any of the band in front of us. Further, we're not clapping because we're going, wow, great job on sound or lights. Those were something. Or those words, wow, you hit them right on. That's not what's going on. When we clap, we're saying, yes. Amen. I agree. So be it. We're affirming the message and we're affirming the God behind the message. Now, you got to understand this. I'm from New York, okay? We're even more reserved in worship than you Midwesterners. I mean, we, we can do a pretty good imitation of a dead log in church. We're, you know, we, we don't, this stuff, anybody does this, we're like, we get on the ground, we think someone's being arrested, you know? <laughs> I mean, we can be cold as ice in worship. And I don't know about you, but as I've grown through the years, sometimes something wells up in me and I can't hold it back. Maybe it doesn't happen to you. Maybe it hasn't happened yet. And I hope someday you have that experience. It's an unstoppable force and it's just got to come out. Wouldn't it be cool if we were moved in unison to say, yes, God, that's our God. That is our God. That's what's happening when we clap. In one voice, we're saying yes. In one voice, we are making a joyful noise to the Lord. You know, we applaud the goofiest things. Guy's holding a stick, he hits a ball, and we, woohoo, yeah. Guy takes a football over a line, and we go crazy. Here's the God of the universe. Every once in a while, somebody ought to jump to their feet and shout, Oh God, you are such a great God. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. That's the password. How can we practically use that password? One of the things we've suggested through the years, if you're not a very grateful person, try just writing down five expressions of gratitude a day. Five things, five things that you're grateful for. I like five because it reminds me of David's five smooth stones. We need five stones to slay the giant of grumbling. Five of them a day. Just go ahead and write it out. We live in a culture that affirms crabbiness. Grumble, 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 grumble. But God isn't in the grumble business. God is in the gratitude business. 
That's one tool for you, one vehicle. Record some gratitude. I need to say a word about groaning. One of the most amazing passages in the Bible is about groaning. Groaning goes way down deep. Groaning goes right to the core. God welcomes our groans. You see this in Romans chapter 8. These are amazing words. It says the creation itself, this planet, this earth is all messed up. Creation is subjected to frustration. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's that word again. All of creation is groaning. Groaning goes way deep. Creation groans. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Death and sickness and pain and suffering, it's not the way God intended it. It's all wrong. And a happy attitude can't paper over that. It's not supposed to. Then Paul says, goes on, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly. We all, as human beings, do this. Those of us who know and love to follow and seek after God, who name the name of Jesus, who have the Holy Spirit within us, we are not exempt from groaning. See, groaning is what you do when you hurt so much that you just can't express it. Have you ever been with a family member when they're really groaning? I mean, physically or emotionally, they are deeply groaning. I don't know about you, but for me, I'd rather be the one in pain. It is hard to just sit in the presence of another person who is groaning that kind of groan. This church ought to be a place of great gratitude, where, we ov- where we're overtly grateful to God, where we stand to our feet and applaud our God, but it also needs to be a place where groaning is welcome and honest and real, where it's okay to bring that heart of groaning before God. So many people get confused on this. They think if something's bad, it means we did something wrong. It means God has done something wrong. We mistakenly think that, you know, followers of Jesus, if you're obedient to him, everything should always be okay. Not so much. It doesn't work that way. Not since the time of Job, actually even further than back. We've all had reason to groan. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. So creation groans and we groan. But you know what? It keeps going. Pain gets us to the heart of God. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, not by making everything okay, not by giving us the strength to be tough enough. It says, he helps us with our weakness for when we don't know what to pray, he fills in the words. It says, the Spirit intercedes for us, how? With groanings too deep for words. Creation groans, people groan, Christians groan. Guess who else groans? God groans. God groans. Do you understand? Our God, the holy, matchless, wonderful, powerful, joyful creator of all that is, is a groaning God. Only the God of the Bible is a groaning God and joins you in your groaning. Only the God. who who Jesus made known to the world is a groaning God. This time of the year, we're reminded of the most oppressive words Jesus ever spoke out loud. While on the cross, when he was in anguish, physical anguish, spiritual anguish, he groaned a cry that is deep and is pain-filled, a cry of utter abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Jesus, 
God groans with you. That's our God. He's a groaning God. That's why we stand up to applaud God. There is no other God like that. When you groan, you do not groan alone. Creation groans. The Spirit groans. Friends in Christ groan with you. God groans with you. What a God. What an amazing God. Well, next week, um, we're going to look at one more thing that we need to quit, that if we don't quit, it makes us really unlike Christ. Next week, we're going to look at uh, something that you need to quit, or you're going to be more miserable than ever. I, I promise you. I'm not going to tell you what it is, okay? You have to come back for that. So don't grumble. Don't complain. Just come back. Let's pray. I want you to take a moment before God. Maybe right now you're just aware of so many things that you take for granted. You get complacent about it. Now is your time to be grateful in the presence of God. Right now. If that is the case, do it right now. Do it without guilt. Do it without apology. You don't have to say, oh, I don't do this often enough, God. Just tell him right now that you're grateful. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for all you've given me. Thank you for your goodness to me. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for what I have. Just tell him thank you. Go ahead, right now. And if you're here and your heart is in pain, if you're here and there's something broken way down in your soul, then you go ahead and groan right now. Name it the best you can. God, my heart is broken. God, I'm afraid. God, I just feel so alone. You know, when you do that, the Spirit of God is joining you with groans too deep for words. God knows. God cares all about you. God, hear our prayers. We offer them in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to stand to our feet and have an opportunity to applaud our awesome God through words of song. There's so many lines in that song that you can take with you this week. You plead my cause. Every time you're groaning, Christ and the Spirit are pleading your cause. How can it be? My goodness, that is such an expression of being absolutely overwhelmed by the grace and mercy, everything God offers. So if you're leaving today, your groan may be very, very heavy. And if it is, there's a person standing in the back corner right over here. They'd be glad to pray with you. Also, if it's your first time on the way out, John Beaker stands at the door and he's got a gift for you. If you just say, my first time. Now, if you've been here like 100, we know, okay? So be honest, lying in church, bad, bad, don't do that, all right? Enjoy your week, we'll see you.